0: Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support.
1: And we had to learn, I think as a couple, to respect each other's differences and um, to work through that and understand that neither one of us was wrong in how we were grieving, but we had to realize it, try to work it so that when, as we were expressing our grief, we weren't making the other one worse.
2: Those are the words of Kim Harms, who has an incredible story of grief, but then finding hope, following losses of those around her, including her son. The name of this program is Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of
1: the detectives, I think his name was He Eric. was a
2: golden boy. All we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Welcome to Life Support, hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. My name is Steve Johnson, director of Five Stone Media, a co-sponsor of this program, and our goal is to use story to bring hope and healing. And now let's join the conversation with Pastor Paul. So
0: glad to have you on Life Support, and what we're gonna do today is interview a very special guest in an effort to once again see God enter into suffering and to provide hope for you in your everyday life. And I'm so glad to welcome Dr. Kim Harms to our show. She is a former spokesman for the American Dental Association and the first female president of the Minnesota Dental Association. We are Endued with royalty here. How are you doing? <laughs> Good to see you.
1: Thank you. Paul. I'm doing well here.
0: <laughs> it's great to have you. Well, I was reading through your bio, though, and I could go on and on. You've been on about every cable network and in every newspaper <laughs> and, and all that. So it's really great to have you here. But what you really are, for the purposes of what we're doing today, is a trauma survivor. Mm-hmm. And you have quite a story that I'm sure that you can tell better than I. And it starts. When you were born, really, mm-hmm. so tell me about that, and tell me what god's been doing, and kind of walk me through the
1: stages of your life sure um when I was born uh first of all, my mother was my father was in in the military I was born at Fort Ord California, and uh, my mother was a, a hand model and my my dad was in the military and when I was born, the first thing that the nurse said when I was born was all ten fingers and toes. But then a few minutes later, she discovered she had miscounted and I was missing three fingers. And at the time, we didn't know why. We didn't, you know. Uh, and it was, of course, in my mind now, as a 64 year old, a relatively small problem. But at the time, uh, whenever you have a child that's not uh, perfect, it, it was a big problem in the mind of my mother, especially. And she, my mother was a great mother. She was a godly woman, she was a loving woman. Uh, she also was, uh, suffered from depression. And uh, so we went through some some things, as as you would could guess uh, with with that, including one time uh, she had gotten so depressed after uh, my my father divorced her uh, that she sat all three of us, my my um, brother, sister, and I, she sat on a railroad track uh, in in Missouri and uh, waited for a train to come. She all just three of you. us, all three of us with wow. her, and she did so because she just felt she couldn't live any longer and didn't want us to suffer. And and I know that sounds a little crazy, and it was, because she was suffering from a, a, an emotional illness. Luckily, she got off that track uh, mm. before the train got to us, but that's how deeply depressed she was. And and it. I, I really want to point out that even with those things, even with that story, she was the most amazing mother I could ever ask for. She was loving and kind and caring, and she taught me, most importantly, to trust in God in all things, the most important thing I could ever learn. Uh, when I was six, uh, my dad called my mom, and uh, they had just found out that in Europe uh, a, a number of uh, babies had been born with missing limbs, uh, arms, legs, fingers, and it was due to a drug called thalidomide, which women were taking as a anti-nausea drug. And he went to tell my mother that, of course, it was her fault that mm-hmm. I was missing my fingers. And as a kind, caring, compassionate mother, Um, who was suffering from depression, that was a little too much for her. And she ended up going into a a mental hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, where uh, she stayed basically the rest of her life. Uh, and we went to live with my father and my uh, stepmother, which was not a good combination my My father forgot to tell my stepmother before she got married that he had three kids so uh, you can imagine that she was not real happy to inherit three of us. She was pregnant with her first child, and my dad went off to command a ship somewhere out the on the ocean. so you can imagine that start it would not be a good one and it didn't it was not a good situation um when I was seventeen. My mother uh, took her own life. She her depression had had gotten the best of her, and she took her own life. Uh, She sent us all cards that said, "All my love, always, Mom," which I still have. That's a thing she left us before she died. And um, at that time, my world was destroyed. I thought, and so I went into a depression. Yeah, how do you
0: process that when you're
1: 17? It's it's. very difficult, and at seventeen, you're at that age where you're looking at life in general. You're looking, mm-hmm. you, you're. It's it's such a difficult age emotionally, anyway. And then to lose your mom to suicide, um, it. I was my plan was to become a psychiatrist and and find a cure for my mother. That was a plan for my life. So I had, you know, was living for my mother, and now she was gone. So um, so it was a very very difficult time. And um, but you know, God God is always with us. And 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 so a few months later. Uh, when I started the University of Maryland, uh, I met a man named Jim Harms at a softball game. Um, he would tell you that um, that he hit three doubles, and I thought he struck out three times. We really can't remember, but anyway, we had a we met at a softball game and. Um, uh, he wanted to go to dental school and being, you know, a, a woman of the 70s, and now I wasn't going to become a psychiatrist because my mom had passed away and I couldn't save her anymore. So I thought, well, you know, that sounds like a good job. And maybe, again, I'm a woman of the 70s, uh, he'd marry me if I had a good job, right? So <laughs> so I decided to, uh, uh, to go to dental school. And, of course, I had to, uh, when I went to my first advisor, uh, and said, well, hey, can I go to dental school, you know, and I'm missing some fingers. And he said, uh, uh, no way. Are you kidding me? They're not going to take you into dental school with three fingers or with seven fingers. That's that's crazy. And I thought at the time, OK, I'll have to find another way to get Jim to marry me. Um, and as I was leaving, though, this, this advisor said something that just changed my life again. He said... But maybe if you were a man, I remember this was the 70s. Oh boy! And so when yeah. he said that to a 17-year-old, you bet you better believe I was going to find a way yeah, to get that to dental school. A, right? That's right. That got me going. Mm-hmm. That got me going. So I went, yeah. found another advisor. She was terrific. It turned out I got into dental school early. I, Jim Jim was going to dental school. We ended up in the same class and uh, went to dental school with Jim. We were married. Um, so my plan worked. Uh, getting going to dental school, my my, my ultimate plan worked, um, and we practiced together. You know, for we graduated in 1981, so from then until, oh gosh, about 10 years ago, we we practiced together for about 30 years. And um, things were going along well. My life was was moving ahead. Uh, You know, I was president of the Dental Association. I was on the school board. I was very active. Um, We had a great—we made every one of the kids ball games. We just had a great family life. And had
0: you, at this point, dealt with your mother's suicide or— when was my, that
1: kind of compartmentalized or where were you with that that was compartmentalized mm-hmm. and it was compartmentalized um, because I don't think I knew how to grieve when I was 17 and so it was still there and it was in the background um and in night in 2007 jim was diagnosed with liver cancer and uh, of course I went and checked out on the you know on the internet what his odds were of living and it was 5% but six months later, miraculously, he got a liver transplant, so that worked out. But six months after that, on December—excuse me, on January 31st of 2009, um, 45 minutes after the, a breakup with his girlfriend, my son, my only son, Eric, took his own life. He was a student at Columbia University, brilliant. He had just had the best first semester ever. He was on the dean's list. He was on the student council at Columbia. He was playing in the jazz uh, band. He was a jazz pianist. He just was having the best time. But his girlfriend broke up with him. He didn't know how to handle that. And again, 45 minutes later, he was gone. And at that point in time, our worlds shattered mm-hmm. into pieces. We did not, I did not know how to process that at all. Uh, and of course, then it brought back my mom. Of course. And so what, what did my mother and my son have in common? Me. So... The guilt,
0: a common denominator. Common
1: denominator. I felt guilt about my mother's death. Maybe I could have saved her. I felt guilt about my son's death. What? What? How could I have helped him to know how to manage these situations in life? Um, and I, we've, we felt, we both fell apart. Jim and I.
0: The one thing I would say before we go any further, and I pray that if you're listening, that this will never happen to you. Or, but I want to just try to explain for a moment what it feels like when your child dies mm-hmm. unexpectedly your world virtually stops turning you can't breathe you you are for a while you can function in shock mode because you have to and then everything just turns into a fog mm-hmm. and it's it's a feeling that you can't describe unless you go through it it's different than any other kind of death but it's devastating and now you're dealing with that, and you're dealing with the suicide element, and here you are in the middle of another
1: suicide, and here comes shame and guilt. Right? Shame and guilt are the devil's most dangerous weapons. They use that in fear, and uh, those things were all involved and intertwined. And um, you know, I didn't want to go on anymore. I I did, didn't know how to. Get, I didn't know how I would get up in the in the morning. You, you just described it. You can't describe it. It's it's too horrible to even describe in words. Um, I did have something that helped me pretty, maybe about a month or so after Eric died. Uh, I was. We went back, we'd been back at work, and I went outside of the dental office. Jim was with a cousin who had lost his brother at about 17. And uh, his parents had never processed the grief. This was probably 30 years later. His parents had never processed the grief, and they were estranged. And he came to me and he had tears in his eyes and he looked at me and he said, "Kim, don't you ever let your remaining children think that they are not enough mm. and that changed my life as well now, first of all if anyone else had said that I would have wanted to punch him in the nose yeah. because it's you don't 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 judge my grief you know yeah, don't yeah. judge what don't judge what I'm going through but I knew his situation and it really went into my soul that When you're going through a grief process like this, and you have to process through it and get through it, but you also have to realize its effects on the people around you. And Jim had just Mm -hmm. had a liver transplant; he was, you know, he he was in that same mode you described
0: that nobody can describe. So that so that kind of snapped you into kind of a different reality where you realized that you still had. A mission. You still had to think about those around you. Did you just put your grief aside then, or did you deal with it differently?
2: We'll be back to the conversation with Paul and Kim in just a moment. You know, Pastor Paul is hosting this program from a unique perspective. After losing his first wife to cancer, he then experienced the homicide of his young adult son. And that's what life support really is all about. It's survivors in discussion with other survivors. My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we are so pleased to be a co-sponsor of this program. And for more about our work, log on to www.lifesupportresources.org. And now, back to Pastor Paul.
1: But you also have to realize its effects on the people around you. And Jim had just had a liver transplant. He was, you know, he, he was in that same mode you described that nobody can describe. So that, so that
0: kind of snapped you into kind of a different reality where you realized that you still had a mission. You still had to yeah. think about those around you. Did you just put your grief aside then, or did you deal with it differently? Um,
1: I did what, what most of us do when we have grief. I put this f- fake smiley face on and tried to process it. In the back, um, God sent a lot of—that was one of, I think, one of God's angels to me to to, to tell me that. But he sent other people. I, I had a—Lyndon a Dungy, who's a brother of Tony Dungy, started writing letters to us, and we ended up meeting every every Tuesday. He was like my our own personal grief counselor. Wow. Uh, he was a dentist. He practiced mm-hmm. right down the street from us. Um, we had our pastors from our church that helped. Um, but mostly, I just tried to fake it until I made it, and um, it was harder for Jim to do that. He was more expressive, and one of the things that I learned was Jim and I were so different in how we responded and reacted to the grief. Um, I couldn't go into Eric's room for two years. When the boxes came from Columbia, I couldn't look at them. They had to be put way down in the basement somewhere, or a place I could never go. I just couldn't. Uh, when I saw pictures of Eric or heard his voice on tapes. I would just have a meltdown. Jim, however. He wanted that. He wanted that. So he would go into the room and he would Mm -hmm. listen to tapes and he would Mm -hmm. look at pictures. Um, And we had to learn, I think, as a couple, to respect each other's differences and um, to work through that and understand that neither one of us was wrong in how we were grieving. But we had to realize that try to work it so that when, as we were expressing our grief, we weren't making the other one worse. And so we learned to do that, which took a while. And I think mm-hmm. that's, um, divorce is so common after traumatic loss of a child. And um, and I think we actually got stronger, um, and mainly because we both were true believers that, you know, our son was, oh, although it took me a while to, to realize where he was. And, and, of course, when you lose a child or a loved one, the most important thing is, where is he? That's yeah. the first question. Where is he, Lord? And especially with the suicide. And you
0: walk around going, now, now he did get baptized, and um, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm confirming this in my mind now, and and you go through that process, and then God comes along and helps confirm it many times, too, through others. and But that's the first question you ask, mm-hmm. at least as a believer, that's the first question mm-hmm. you ask. It's interesting, too, that you mentioned how people grieve differently, and here you are, a married couple, and you're struggling with that, but... It seems that everybody in your sphere of influence knows how you should be grieving. <laughs> and that's terribly frustrating and hurtful because they have no idea. Yeah. And so sometimes you just want to look at them and say, just be quiet. And we just want to talk. We want to fix. I fix. And I'm a
1: fixer. Yeah. I, I have to say that I fall into that category or I fell oh, into I that I have category. Too. Sure. Um we had a, a, one of our hygienists at our office that lost a son, similar to Eric. High school student girl broke up with him, gone within about a you know within an hour or so. So she had lost her son to suicide, and I have to tell you, uh, for all of those people out there that have found themselves in this situation, after a year or two, in my own mind, I thought, well, when is she going to when's she going to get over this? I mean, I I, yeah. I fell into that category, and of yeah. course, yeah. when I was in that when I was in that position, she was there for me and I'm so ashamed of myself that I thought that but I think that that's a common feeling Um, we just because we don't understand it we don't understand understand it it.
0: and we can't expect others to understand but what we can do is we can give people tools of what to say and what not to say Mm -hmm. and I often tell people the best thing you can do is just be quiet because what people who are grieving want is presence not words just presence they'll ask you if they want something and um, and so here you are now you've You've been through the suicide of your mom and now your son, devastating. How did the suicide of your mom kick into this now? What were you you already talked about the common denominator, so you're you're kinda of going, Well, wow, it was me. I was here both times. Did you realize that the grief that you had pushed aside with your mother now was coming back and heaped on what you were feeling yeah. with your son?
1: Yeah, it was like a double tsunami. I yeah. was right in the middle and I was it was like I couldn't breathe for Probably about two years. I know that sounds horrible, but it was.
0: No, it doesn't I, I, sound horrible I, I, at all.
1: Two at least two years. I was stuck in that, and and, um, uh, and I know that again, nobody, people knew I was recovering from my son's death, but nobody really understood the mm-hmm. fact that this was a double situation. So I think that repressed grief uh, certainly can come back and haunt you, and the, working through that is so important.
0: So you, your mom was a believer. Mm-hmm. Your son was a believer. Yes. After you began to get traction and could start to process that fact, how did that give you hope and comfort?
1: Well, first of all, I have to say I was so blessed to have a great church and a great pastor, because even at the funeral, he addressed that. I also want to say that I was God gave me the amazing blessing. That um, we were Baptist, you know. So it was our our church is Baptist. Eric grew up in a Baptist church. I grew up Catholic, and Eric was going to a Catholic church, Saint Thomas Academy here in Minnesota. When he died, now my mother was Catholic, and at the time that time, um, they were very um, kind of ambivalent about what happened in the suicide. Was she gonna? Nobody would really Mm -hmm. answer it, but it was you know we, we couldn't have it. Nobody would give a mass at that time uh that uh, back you know this is back well, in the a Catholic 70s. doctrine
0: would say that yes. it's an unpardonable sin yes
1: right yes and so but you know nobody ever said that to me but obviously mm-hmm. if they're not going to give her a funeral and you know that's that's how i felt when eric died the catholic st thomas academy showed up at his he wasn't even a student there anymore he'd moved on to college Showed up with the, the entire band came and played. Eric was the drum major at St. Thomas, so the entire band came and played at his funeral. Half of the church was taken up by these young men in full dressed uniforms, wow. who were showing respect for my son. When his casket was being taken out, they stood up and saluted his, which is most, I get I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about yeah. that moment. Yeah. Uh, the the Catholic pastor, the priest at the church, I you know it just happened. Of course, God, God. Uh, arranged that um, to run into him a few days later, and he was dying of cancer. And he said, "It was." He said, I, "I was so shocked when I heard about Eric, and I I just want to let you know he's with God. Just don't even have a, a moment's doubt. He is with God." And and he said, "And I'm going to be there pretty soon myself." And you know that reassurance from the Baptists and the Catholics and the fact that they you know everyone was doing this together. Um, was a great support to me, and and unfortunately, many people don't have that support. So I, mm-hmm. I, I really have to credit my recovery from this with a lot of wonderful people that have been in my life to help encourage me and to remind me, of course, that God is a loving God and a kind and loving God. So
0: somebody might be listening or um, sitting here with us in the studio to hear us talk like this, mm-hmm. and they could say, loving God? What are you talking about? You just ran through a litany of things that I would never want to go through. So how can you say loving God?
1: You know, I was at, um, shortly after Eric died, I was at a, I went with some family down to uh, Savannah and we went into a church, beautiful basilica there, and we were just touring and we went through the Stations of the Cross. And I'll never forget when I got to the one where Mary is taking Jesus off the cross. And I realized at that point that Look at all the things she went through, and God loved her. Mm-hmm. He is a loving and kind God, and he loved us so much that he gave his son. I didn't give my son. I didn't, I didn't choose right. to allow my son mm-hmm. to die. He gave his son, and gave, knowing he was going to go through what he did, his horrible death, for us, he loved us so much that he went through an experience that we can't even describe to save us so that we so because God gave his son to die on the cross my son is in heaven and and that moment when i realized that you know it it made such a difference in my life and i think we really have to remember that the, the things on this earth are temporary you know i'm getting older as you get older you start facing your mortality um but the things on this earth are temporary and we we look forward to this wonderful time in heaven where I'm going to see my mother again. I'm going to see Eric again and we'll get to, my, my husband just passed away too, so I will see him again. Um, so that's, I, I know he's a kind and loving God and and um, what other sacrifice, I mean, there's not a greater sacrifice you could make as you know and I know. Yeah, And he did that for us.
0: Well, that's, that, the fact that you can even say those words is a work of the Holy Spirit and uh, your faith is being deepened and uh, I know you also have a story um, with your husband. We'll talk about that next time. But I really appreciate your honesty and transparency in sharing your story with us today because I think we all need to... I'm going to hire you, by the way, to come Christmas Eve at my church and give the gospel <laughs> because <laughs> that was the gospel. And um, we have to all understand that we live in a broken world, mm-hmm. And but yet God is operating within this broken world with a purpose, and uh, his redemptive story is ongoing and sometimes it looks like we want it to, and sometimes it just doesn't. But it doesn't mean that God has disappeared. And so thank you for reminding us of that today. Appreciate it so much. That's Kim Harms, and she's going to be back next time as well to continue her story. And I just want to encourage you that um, life can be hard because we are under the effects of sin. But Psalm thirty-four, seventeen through 20 reminds us, When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so I want you to be encouraged by that because sometimes it feels like we've talked about that you can't breathe, that your body has nothing left to give. But that's when God steps up and says, I am here. So don't be afraid. To give yourself to him, don't be afraid to trust him with your pain. Talk to him about it and let him minister to you, and you'll find him to be faithful. I want to thank you for listening today as well. Uh, We have wonderful partners that make life support possible, Faith Radio, and you can check in there at myfaithradio.com. You can see a video version of this podcast on Five Stone Media's website, FiveStoneMedia.com. We'd also love to see you at Ridgewood Church, MyRWC.org. And I'd love to catch you on Twitter as well, at Pastor Paul J. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time right here on Life Support.
2: My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we are so pleased to be a co-sponsor of this program. And For more about our work, log on to www.lifesupportresources.org. Life Support is a co-production of Five Stone Media and Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota.